George Herbert. Well, George Herbert's wonderful. And of course, you'll know as much about him as I do, many of you. Um, uh, you want some dates, so maybe I could help. Uh, he was born in 1593. A father died early, but the mother was a very influential person, Madeline. And she had a very good friend who turns out to be George Herbert's godfather, John Donne. And George Herbert is going to be educated at the Westminster School. And uh, the liturgy at Westminster Abbey is going to be a key part of that entire experience. He's going to go as a young man to Trinity College, Cambridge. And I think we might say he was something of a dandy. Always very well-dressed, extraordinarily talented, and he eventually becomes a tutor at Trinity College, Cambridge, and university lecturer, and the public orator. Could I just put a little tiny footnote when that comes? Um, the Renaissance education was kind of put together by a man called Castiglione, a good friend of Raphael in Urbino. And he's going to write about the ideal education. The schoolmaster of Elizabeth I read that, and Elizabeth I was educated according to the ideas of the Renaissance prince. When Elizabeth I went to Cambridge, the university orator, who obviously was not George Herbert at the time, the university orator stood up and gave her a greeting in well-prepared, polished Latin. She responded off the cuff in polished Greek. <laughs> She was educated uh, according to the Renaissance. Well, George Herbert, uh, later on, is going to become the university orator. He's going to enter Parliament. He's got perhaps a great future as a courtier, as a diplomat. He's a very sensitive, well-educated, polished gentleman and eventually he has a crisis and he's going to be staying with relatives at Wilton House near Cambridge. Wilton House is a very special place in terms of English literature. Shakespeare was there, and Ben Johnson was there, and Spencer was there and wrote a, a, a very interesting thing. And his cousin is going to be the Earl of Pembroke. And he's going to have some sort of conversion. And he ends up in 1630 ordained a deacon. Now, 
one of the difficulties, of course, is that the parish priest is not the polished Church of England vicar that you get in Jane Austen's period. It's not going to have a great high status. What happens is that George Herbert takes this little tiny parish, Bemerton, and there's another church attached to it also, and he's only going to be there for three years. And he dies. And he dies in 1633. But he's going to write his prayers. Now, George Herbert didn't write hymns. We take his. And he didn't write poetry. He wrote prayers. And I think that that's important to remember that for him, those poems were prayers. And Bemerton is a very special place because what he does is to do two things. He writes the poems, the prayers, but he also writes a book on the clergyman. And it would be a man, of course, and how he should live and how his family should live. And this is absolutely fascinating because if we could jump back for a moment to Ficino. Ficino was a philosopher in the classical sense, and philosopher meant, as I said, doctor of the soul. Think back to Romeo and Juliet. Do you remember all those productions you've seen of Friar Lawrence? What is the function of the priest? besides the spiritual. He's the herbal doctor. Remember, medicine at the time of George Herbert, or at the time of Shakespeare, or the time of Ficino, is not based upon chemistry as ours is. It's based upon botany and biology. Botany. So he's going to be the doctor of the parish also is going to talk about those herbs that should be grown. And what we have is this experience in these three years of George Herbert at Bemerton with farmers by and large and their families as the parishioners. And he writes the book on what the country clergyman should be like and should do and his family. And simultaneously, he's going to write these prayers. And if we talk about the Anglican experience, it seems to me that there are three places in England if you want to find out about it. You could go to Bemerton, where George Herbert was. You could go to a little Gidding, where his friend, Nicholas Ferrer was, his companion from university days. Or you could go to George Herbert's second church that a lot of people don't know about. 
he had another church that he never visited, but he designed on the interior. He designed all the furniture, the pews, the altar, the uh, two um, preaching things, electric, everything. And this was about three miles from Little Gidding, and it was a place called, Late, it's still there, Leighton Bromswold. And he was the curate of Leighton Bromswold. He designed the entire furnishing of the interior of this church. And you can go there today, and it hasn't changed a bit. Little Gidding, Leighton Bromswold, Bemerton. There's another place for those of you who know the Midlands, right on the border between Leicestershire and Derbyshire, is a wonderful little church. And fortunately, the National Trust has it now, so it's not coming down. <laughs> called Stoughton Herald. I don't know if any of you heard of it. Stoughton. S-T-A-U-T-O-N. Herald. And all of these people are going to be in touch with each other. And during the Commonwealth, Sir Thomas Shirley is going to build a Gothic church. And of course, when the Cromwellians found about it, he ends up in the Tower of London where he dies. But when you go to Staunton Herald, and I hope you can make the pilgrimage someday, over the door is the dedication to Sir Thomas Shirley, who did the best of things in the worst of times. <laughs> And it was that continuation of that Anglican experience when the Church of England was completely wiped off the map. And there were ties between these three places. But the interesting thing about it, if you look at the Little Gidding community, or you look at Nicholas Ferrer writing about the parsonage and the parson and the villagers, you have a form of spirituality that I would like to call domestic spirituality. Oh, if you don't mind, Christianity before Constantine was domestic. Celebration of the Eucharist. In the worst times, it's going to be down in the catacombs, but other times it's going to be in the home. And this is what the great reformers tried to do in jumping back to the pre-Constantinian period. But it's a very interesting thing. With Christians coming overnight, and Christians coming into the majority, they had to have huge places to worship. And so Constantine gave them the law courts which in Latin is the basilica. And the basilica, and if you talk to a liturgist, and the English church that would be closest to the original basilica would be Norwich Cathedral, was merely the law court, and the presider's chair was the judge's chair. <coughs> then they put the altar, and then the lectern. Well, now the interesting thing is that since Constantine in the West, much of our spirituality 
has been done institutionally. And that's not a bad thing. But notice that you and I are living in a world now, and of course it's a world like Isaac Walton. I'm sorry we can't talk about him tonight. He writes the life of George Herbert. And to her, and Herbert is just on the cusp of that. The little Gidding community is going to live through it, where the domestic, the home, becomes the form of the Christian community. And I think that it has a lot to say. And of course, this is why, and we look at this next week, when T.S. Eliot wanted to look back and find out what is the essence of this, he goes to Little Gidding. Because there's something there, just like if you're a Roman Catholic, you would go to Lourdes or Rome, or if you were Reformed, you might go to Geneva or something like that. You know what I mean? The thing is that to go to Little Gidding or to Bemerton or to Staunton Herald or to Leighton Bromswold has something to say about a domestic spirituality where families live. And the one thing that we're told so well by, George, uh, by Isaac Walton is the fact that George Herbert is going to marry, not going to have children, but going to have two nieces whom he and his wife raise. And the bell is going to ring, same bell as at Bemerton right now. The bell is going to ring at 10 o'clock, and the family and the servants, four servants, will all go together for the morning prayer from the Book of Common Prayer. And at 4 p.m., the bell will ring and the family will go over. And this is very close to Cranmer because the Book of Common Prayer was not made for clerics. The reason it is vulgar, vulgus, it's the common for everybody. And what happens is that with George Herbert and his family and his familial life, that goes on. Now, if we could move from him to some of his prayers. Do you have any questions about that, though, before we go on? I'm not asking a really stupid question. No, I'll give you a stupid answer. <laughs> is Isaac Walton the same one who wrote The Complete Angler? Or is it Isaac Absolutely the same one. And if we could only have a session on the complete angler, because, as you know, there's a break in the Church of England's experience during the Commonwealth, when it ceases to exist. You know, one of the greatest works produced is going to be the complete angler, by a layman, Isaac Walton. And Isaac Walton is going to write this when Anglican theology, Anglican liturgy is totally forbidden. And in Isaac Walton, we have the separation between sacred and profane wiped away. And he talks about the Christian life through fishing. And he makes the statement, the reason that Jesus chose fishermen is because fishermen who sit by the hour by the river are natural contemplatives. <laughs> Isaac Walton, the layman, is the one who writes the life of John Donne, who writes the life of George Herbert, 
So when we have the reconstituted Church of England later, we have that tie back to the original one. But I think one of the important things, again, is that Isaac Walton is the layman, and again, he's talking about a lay, a domestic spirituality. And we have the idea of the great Anglican divines through him who combine three things. We call them the Caroline divines because the period of Charles. Learning, but not learning like we mean pointed head. Learning, piety, and pastoral care. And they all feed one into another. And one of the things, as you know, um, we'll look at this next week. Uh, Lancelot Andrews was a bishop. And he was talking about his clergy. And he had a wonderful statement. He said, never trust a man, he's talking about his clergy, who calls on you before noon. <laughs> because the clergyman was to be in his study in the morning. And this is a time when learning and study and prayer were not separated from each other. Unfortunately, something has happened since. But learning, study, and prayer was what the clergyman did in the morning. And then in the afternoon, one of the things that he did was to do the visiting of the people in the parish. And George Herbert goes into the third thing that was one of the important things, to reconcile people in the parish, to keep them as much as possible from getting to the law court, to do it right at home. And one of the functions he saw of the parish clergyman was to be the reconciler between quarreling parties. But there's one other marvelous thing that we've left out about George Herbert. He was a superb musician. And he played the lute. And twice a week, he would walk to Salisbury Cathedral, join a group for music making, and then he would join in the choral evensong. And he said that those times when he could join in the choral evensong at Salisbury Cathedral was the times when he knew what heaven was like. And it reminds one of Gregory the Great, who is behind all of this. And if you ever want to find more about Gregory the Great, go to read about Michael Ramsey who tried to embody the ideal of Gregory the Great. And if we had time, we could do that this evening. But one of the things that George Gregory the Great said, the tragedy about most Christians is that they postpone heaven until after death. <laughs> and it's not necessary. One can experience heaven on this earth through the contemplative experience. And obviously, this is something that George Herbert had. But the nice thing is that we can look into his soul. <laughs> Let's start with love. Um, who would like to read? Any good reader, loud reader. You. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here, 
Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. Bittersweet. Would you like to read Bittersweet? It's on the other side. It's the two stanzas up on the right. And all you have to do is be loud. Ah, my dear angry Lord, since thou dost love yet strive, cast down yet help afford, sure I will do the like. I will complain yet praise, I will bewail, approve, and all my sour sweet days I will lament and love. Um, one of the things, obviously, in contemporary Christianity, we know from psychology, it's not good to repress unpleasant emotions. They go somewhere else where they make trouble. And one of the wonderful things with Herbert is that all the negative things come out to be expressed to God, as well as the positive things. And I think the difficulty is that in prayer we forget that there's as much oomph there in the negative destructive things as in the positive ones. And often in Herbert's poetry, you'll find some strain and some torturousness, like this, but that, and this, but that. And notice how he breaks up the rhythm simply because he gives that experience of prayer where, my God, it's all of it. Could you do it again, please? Ah, my dear angry Lord, since thou dost love, yet strike, cast down, yet help afford, sure I will do the like. I will complain, yet praise, I will bewail, approve, and all my sour sweet days I will lament and love. All my sour sweet days. It's like the songs, isn't it? Bringing in, you know, the songs have the opposites. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that hasn't been done enough in terms of George Herbert's poetry is that music has a lot to do with the poetry. A lot to do with the poetry. Now, the great one. Paul, would you like, are you good at this? Okay, who's somebody else? Who would like to read prayer for us? And it's wonderful to hear it out loud. And we'll do it again. <laughs> and again and again. Uh, this is on, it's by itself, it's at the top, it's above the pulley. Um, let's see, just to say, uh, the word is isn't there. Prayer is. Who would like to read it for us? Okay. Yeah, are you good? <laughs> All you have to be is loud. Okay. Prayer, the church's banquet. Angels age. God's breath in man returning to his birth. 
The soul in paraphrase, heart in pilgrimage. The Christian plummet sounding heaven and earth. Engine against the Almighty, sinner's tar, reversed thunder, Christ side piercing spear, the six days world transposing in an hour, a kind of tune which all things hear and fear, softness and peace and joy and love and bliss. Exalted manner, gladness of the best. Heaven in ordinary, man well dressed. The Milky Way, the bird of paradise. Church bells beyond the stars heard, the souls blowed. The land of spices, something understood. <coughs> Um, we'll look at T.S. Eliot next week. And T.S. Eliot went back to Harvard, his album Mater, sat in a seminar, and a woman said, Mr. Eliot, could you tell me what this poem means? He said, oh, yes, yes. He said, read it. So she read it. He said, that's what it means. <laughs> and she says, no, no, that's not mean. I went, what does it mean? He says, could you read it again? She read it. He says, that's what it means. <laughs> and notice that the sound... The music sound as much, but perhaps everybody didn't get the image in one, two, three, four, five, the fifth and six, the fifth. Does anybody know what that engine is? Against the castle, yeah. reversed thunder. Notice that thunder comes from up there down. Well, we can thunder at God. You read it marvelously. And those images. Well, one good thing the BBC did was to take the title for their... Yeah, something understood. Something understood. Yeah. Heaven in Ordinary. Oh. Somebody has written a book and the different chapters. They have. I can't remember who. I read it. I'm sorry, I can't remember. Somebody took a different line and made that each chapter. I think this is one of the most wonderful things about prayer. Does anybody know what a pulley is? Something you pull up and down with Something that draws you. Uh-huh. And... It's, it's a... Um, um, <laughs> it's tied... It's, it's, it's measuring... Um, whether the um, building is straight, isn't it? Oh, plum. That's a plum. Pardon? A bell? Well, let's try it out and see what it is. We made a little problem. We didn't put the last stanza on. So we got a whole nother section to give you the last stanza. Who would like to read this? Oh, all eyes go down. This is just like church. <laughs> uh, the piety is so, you've been also touched by him. Who would like to read it? Oh, all the eyes are down. Oh, yeah, please. <gasps> when God at first made man, 
having a glass of blessings standing by. Let us, said he, pour on him all we can. Let the world's riches which dispersed lie contract into a span. So strength first made a way, then beauty flowed, then wisdom, honour, pleasure. <clears throat> when almost all was out, God made a stay, perceiving that alone of all his treasure rest in the bottom lay. For if I should, said he, bestow this jewel also on my creature, he would adore my gifts instead of me, and rest in nature, not the God of nature, so both should losers be. Yet let him keep the rest, but keep them repining restlessness. Let him be rich and weary, that at least, if goodness lead him not, yet weariness may toss him to my breast. And you, you get the image? Everything? Yeah. And the one thing will give him everything except rest. Because if nothing else, the restlessness will toss him to my breast. You read that very well, thank you. We were talking about. Really? Oh, yes. Our hearts are at rest and will not be... That's a restatement of Augustine. Um, could I do a little Isaac Walton with you about George Herbert? In another walk to Salisbury, he, George Herbert, saw a poor man with a poorer horse that was fallen under his load. They were both in distress and needed present help, which Mr. Herbert perceiving, put off his canonical coat and helped the poor man to unload and after to lead the horse. The poor man blessed him for it, and he blessed the poor man and was so like the good Samaritan that he gave him money to refresh both himself and his horse and told him, that if he loved himself, he should be merciful to his beast. Then he left the poor man, and at his coming to his musical friends at Salisbury, they began to wonder that Mr. George Herbert, which used to be so prim and clean, came to the company so soiled and decomposed, <laughs> discomposed. But he told them on this occasion, and when one of the company told him he had disparaged himself by so dirty an em employment, his answer was that the thought of what he had done would prove music to him at midnight, and that the omission of it would have upbraided and made discord in his conscience, whosoever he should pass by that place. For if I be bound to pray for all that be in distress, I am sure that I am bound so far as it is in my prayer to practice what I pray for. And though I do no wish for the like occasion every day, let me tell you, I would not unwillingly pass one day of my life without comforting a sad soul or showing mercy. And I praise God for this occasion. And now, let us tune our instruments. Yeah. <laughs>
Now, one of the marvelous things is the fact that we use images to talk about ourselves. Now, one of the difficulties is that what's your output? We're comparing ourselves to a computer. George Herbert compared us in spirituality to musical instruments. We always get out of tune. And each time before we play, we have to get in tune. And that whole thing of being in tune with the universe. And George Herbert was still in the tradition that Ficino was in, that the ancients were in, that said there were three forms of music. The music of the spheres, the music that we hear with our ears, but in the Neoplatonic world, the greatest music was the harmony within. And one of the reasons that we experience listening to music is so that we then can harmonize within ourselves. I like William Hazlitt. I hope you do too. And William Hazlitt wrote about the countryside where George Herbert lived over a century before. And I thought we might close with this. Because at the time that he's describing the countryside that George Herbert lives in is the same time that Constable is painting Salisbury Cathedral. And from the garden of George Herbert's house, the vicarage, and from his bedroom, he can see Salisbury Cathedral. And this is what William Hazlitt wrote. I remember once strolling along the margin of a stream, and this is about his, uh, the area where Herbert was, uh, um, skirted with willows and splashy sedges in one of those low sheltered valleys in Salisbury Plain, where the monks of former ages had planted chapels and built hermit cells. There was a little parish church near, but tall elms and quivering adders, alders hid it from my sight, when all of a sudden I was startled by the sound of a full organ pealing on the ear, accompanied by rustic voices and the welling choir of village maiden and children. It rose, indeed, like an exaltation of rich distilled perfumes. The dew from a thousand pastures was gathered in its softness. The silence of a thousand years spoke in it. It filled the valley like a mist. It seems to be that one of the most interesting things about George Herbert is that he found that all the privileges in court, in Westminster School, in Cambridge, were best used when ministering to the local farmers. <laughs>